This episode of the Unbuild It podcast is brought to you by Huber Engineered Woods, makers of Advantech subfloor assembly products. Engineered with long-lasting strength, moisture resistance, and nail-holding power, Advantech subfloor is the brand builder's trust for quality subfloor. Combine the strength and moisture resistance of Advantech panels with the bonding power of Advantech subfloor adhesive for a solid, even subfloor assembly, perfect for a variety of floor applications. Follow along with builders and their bringing their A-game campaign on the Advantech subflooring YouTube channel at Huberwood on Instagram and their new website. Visit AdvantechAgame.com. Thank you, Huber Engineered Woods. Welcome to the Unbuild It podcast. This is Pete Yost of Building Right. I'm calling this the family and friends episode because I've got my really good friend Steve Basic here. But I also have hey my Hey everybody, welcome back. But I also have my brother Nathan Yost. Nathan's here to talk to us about the COVID virus given his background. So I'm gonna jump right in and say, Nathan, can you tell us a little bit about how you decided to become a doctor in the first place? Well, I don't know how much you remember uh, back in those days, Peter, because that's going back a long time. <laughs> but after I graduated from college, I spent a year back home in Maryland working construction. And then when I moved to Chicago, I continued doing com- construction, but couldn't get any of the other brothers who were old enough to be away from home to work with me. So I kind of was bored and trying to figure out what to do when I started taking pre-med courses that that things that I didn't have as an undergraduate and um, got accepted to medical school, graduated, did uh, general internal medicine and the area that I was especially interested in was pulmonary physiology, how how the lungs work, um, specific problems such as asthma and so I got subspecialty trained in lung medicine and uh, spent a lot of time in intensive care units and hospitals before I decided that uh, I was ready for a change. And um, I don't know if you remember, but in 2000, when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do at that point, that uh, you suggested that I go to Affordable Comfort, which was in Columbus that year, here where I live in Ohio. I do remember that. And meet Joe Betsy and... Uh, Joe Steebrook and Betsy Pettit. So yep. I an affordable them. comfort is a old world uh, conference, right? I don't think it exists anymore, does it? No, there's a new name for the conference for affordable housing, high performance folks. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but you're right, Steve. But it was that was the conference for affordable housing, affordable comfort back in the day. So I um, met Joe and Betsy, had dinner with them, and. Uh, a few drinks, and as you know, Joe likes to make insults and put people down, especially architects, Steve, right? So I, having had a lot of older brothers and people, I just dissed him back. And uh, Joe really likes people that stand up to him, at least to a certain degree. So I got to know Joe and Betsy a little bit, and uh, at that point, I was also trying to figure out what all I would do, and... I actually at that time, I'd started a couple months before working with the American Lung Association here in Columbus with the Health House program of the American Lung Association. And Joe and Betsy were actually a sponsor of certain activities under that program. So 
they suggested that at some point I come visit them for a weekend in Massachusetts. Now, Nathan, hold on a second. Hold on. Because the, the story I heard from Joe about the affordable comfort was that he was given a tra- giving an educational session and there was some guy in the back of the room with his hand up the whole freaking time. And in frustration, Joe finally said, who the heck are you? And you said, I, I, I'm Nathan Yost. And, and Joe turned and said, oh, God, another Yost. That explains everything. That's the story I heard. Well, I'm old enough that my memory may be bad on a couple of those things, but <clears throat> I, I do remember that when we had dinner after um, the, the daytime sessions that Joe and Betsy and Mac Pierce and uh, a few Canadians were there, mm-hmm. and uh, they were just having fun as Joe and I went back and forth. But anyway, moving ahead, so I was interested in um, the, the interaction of... Uh, building science and and health, among other things. And so what I did actually for the next year was travel around the country when Joe was either doing a presentation somewhere or a building investigation. And um, what was interesting about that, it was basically cities that I could fly to on Southwest at the last minute because some of these things were not planned much in advance. So during that year, I actually spent a lot of time uh, with Joe on the road in restaurants, bars, and, and buildings and um, conferences. And uh, then, as you remember, the next summer of 2001, uh, we talked with Joe and Betsy. Well, actually, Joe and Betsy wanted to recruit you to get you to building science. And uh, after they had hired you or about that time, I said, well, do you want to hire another Yoast? That's right. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> So we actually um, flew up. I was working on installing new windows in mother and dad's house in Maryland and uh, flew up to Boston and uh, met with you and Joe and Betsy. And um, we started September 1st. And what happened right after that was catastrophic in that on September 11th, my 11th day working there, uh, mm-hmm. the attack on the World Trade Center in the Pentagon occurred. And I'd that forgotten dramatically, tied. Yeah. Yeah, that dramatically changed um, uh, the, the way we traveled, especially. Yeah. And, of course, that was the time, the 1st of September, that I met Steve. And, and uh, I think at that point I questioned whether I really wanted to be a building scientist. Boy, that's science, two catastrophes but... in the same month. <laughs> <laughs> and Nathan, that, when you were traveling around with Joe early on, that was a bit of a mind meld. Didn't that, didn't that scare you a little bit, doing a mind meld with Joe Stiebrick? Um No, because he and I both have the same warped sense of humor. So we generally appreciated each other's jokes. Um, and... Uh, it it was it was it was a good experience and um, the other thing that was was interesting with Joe was because I wasn't from the building area um, we weren't sort of competing mm-hmm. we were we were more interacting and uh, I also used the Colombo method which was I would ask questions to you know prod him to either explain his position or to uh, try to get him to change it. So it was it was very good experience, and you know the unbuilt it's a, it's podcast. A nice, the unbuilt a podcast. It was a nice intellectual compliment. Sorry. 
That's okay. I was just going to say, you know, we're pretty tough on Joe and Betsy sometimes on the Unbuilded podcast, but man, I think the three of us will attest what an incubator for just stretching your brain. Um, just an incredible place to work because of the mix of people, you know, leading architects, a guy who's a pulmonary specialist who understands buildings, um, the green weenie, you know, me in the background. It was incredibly exciting. Yeah, and there were a bunch of other people. I mean, Nathan mentioned a couple of people like Mac Pierce or Terry Brennan. I mean, these guys are guys that devoted their life to trying to understand building science. And I think the real important thing of note is here that for all the, the younger listeners out here, this is stuff that we were talking about 25 years ago. This mm-hmm. isn't, this is, we're not talking about a conversation we had at a conference three years ago. This is 25 years ago, and even at that time, Mac Pearson, Terry Brennan, and Joe had years behind them talking about this stuff. So it, it, it's not new stuff. Right. I really felt like a Johnny-come-lately in that uh, although I had done a lot of things in construction with uh, several brothers, including Peter at times, that, that were uh, building and renovating houses, uh, but I didn't necessarily understand uh, especially the water management of things that we were uh, doing the, in those houses. But um, Joe and Betsy, yes, inter- introduced us not only to um, some of the most knowledgeable people in North America in, in building science, but also to production builders. And so that during the three years that I was at building science, I traveled throughout the United States uh, looking at individual private homes, um, production builder projects, and uh, even got to go to Hawaii to investigate uh, problems in a hotel. So it was quite an experience. So Nathan, let's, let's, let's jump into the topic at hand, which is the, the COVID virus. Can you just give us your quick overview of uh, sort of where it all began and then where we are right now, just as a quick overview as we get into the specifics of how buildings interact with the virus. Right, I'd just just say a few things to put it in context as to why it's such a big problem. Although we we refer to it by a number of different names, but COVID-19 is the, the official name. But the important thing to realize is that this is different from almost any other infection that humans have uh, suffered from as far as we know in recorded history. So that there are two similar viruses that caused the SARS epidemic in, I think, 2003 and the MERS epidemic, which is for the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And they are also coronaviruses, but they are different enough that no one, no human, has any specific antibodies or you know, the ability to resist this infection, this infection because of antibodies from a previous similar infection. So that makes it very different from influenza, which changes from year to year. But anyone who has had influenza or a previous vaccine will at least have some antibodies that tend to make a new infection with a different strain of influenza not as severe would be otherwise. So that's why even though a lot of people, especially those much younger than us, 
don't tend to get very sick from being infected by uh, this virus, that they don't have any inherent or natural immunity to it. And so uh, when we talk about the relationship between building and building science, Nathan, you and I wrote a blog together for Green Building Advisor. Um, and what came up the, during that conversation was sort of how different we might think about uh, management of a virus like this when we talk about hospitals versus office versus residential. So how about if you walk us through how you think these different types of buildings uh, relate to how you deal with the virus? Right. Well, let, let's take um, medical buildings uh, first or hospitals. And uh, I've got to admit, I haven't spent a lot of time in hospitals uh, other than some as a patient in the last decade. But from observations and seeing videos of what's going on, a couple things that did strike me. One is that in a lot of hospitals, the hallways are pretty narrow for getting one gurney by another gurney. And this really didn't make a whole lot of difference uh, in the past because you wouldn't see people that were worried about how a, a um, infectious agent was being passed. But if you have one person who's come out of a contaminated area with a gown that then bumps next to the gown of someone else, uh, you could have transfer of the infectious agent. So that, that's one thing I noticed. The other thing is that other than for special hospitals that took care of Ebola patients or very unusual situations, hospitals don't have any kind of decontamination chamber or room. Mm. And so they've had to improvise because what they're finding is that um, pe people who were exposed to someone that's sick with the virus and on a ventilator or coughing, that they could have the, the virus scattered over their, their, their clothing, their, uh, their gown. And so what hospitals have had to do is improvise. And in some cases, they've set it up outside so that um, the medical personnel, when they leave for the day, will go through this decontamination chamber, take off their clothing and throw that in to be laundered at high temperature and then go into another room where they put on their clothes to then uh, leave the medical area. That's funny. We have that we have vestibules you know, from the inside to the outside for for controlling heat loss. This is uh, like a new chamber for decontamination. Right. And as I said, they, they built that into some specialty hospitals or areas of specialty hospitals because of Ebola, hmm. which is, though related to the COVID virus, they're in the same group, is uh, very, very different and uh, was much more infection, uh, contagious. So that that's why they had to build those special decontamination uh, chambers. You know, the, the thing that I find quite interesting about it is when you look at hospitals, the, the people that are inhabiting the hospital are probably the people that you most don't want to get the virus, right? Because they're the most vulnerable because they're probably in the hospital with other problems that are associated with the, you know, their immune system being down or being even less guarded, say, than a healthy person walking out in a street or in a restaurant or wherever. 
Right. right. Well, one of the one of the ways hospital systems have have managed this in New York City is they moved all of the non COVID-19 patients out of a hospital into another hospital and then only had COVID-19 patients in a hospital. Now, what complicated this, of course, was that people were showing up at emergency rooms. Mm, and yeah. so uh, that did complicate it, but, but the, they were really trying to keep them separate. But related to that, Steve, is that the, the biggest risk um, from infected people has been for medical personnel. Uh, in Italy, uh, about half of the deaths at one point were medical personnel. Um, I, I, maybe a little bit overstating that, but I, uh, among all the people under 50, 55 years of age, the majority of them were medical personnel. And they're also being exposed to extremely high levels of the virus from uh, critically ill patients. Hey, Nathan, you sent me an article, I think, recently about how six feet may not be even close to enough, given how, uh, it, I guess it's called puffing, you know, can project the aerosol containing all manner of things, including the virus, further than six feet? That, that's the term I use when you talk to me, Peter. Oh, he's just puffing. <laughs> Uh, there was a very interesting study done recently by a researcher, and I forget her name, at MIT. And what she did was use um, some agent that would make the exhaled uh, breath uh, visible to a special um, uh, camera. Mm -hmm. And with regular breathing, the aerosol droplets and these are microscopic but but it's not just a particle it's it's a very small droplet of water will um, go about three to six feet but when a person coughs i believe it went as far as 23 feet wow. across across the room um so you know that's very different to be keeping six feet from someone who's just breathing but if someone's coughing or sneezing and they don't do it into their elbow um, or tissue, that's going to travel pretty far. Yeah, now, that, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we don't know for sure how long it may s stay suspended in the air. But for the most part, within several minutes, uh, most of that, those droplets uh, make it to the ground. Mm-hmm. So, Nathan, that's a good sort of overview on hospitals, and we're honing in on homes since that's usually our focus. But what about office and commercial buildings? What's special about their configuration or performance related to the virus? Hey, hey Nathan, before you answer that, I, I, I'm going to play the ultimate layman here um, for our, our listeners. And I just want to understand, like you, you said earlier, that the, the virus, we've had, never had anything like this. Does, does that mean that COVID-19 has existed throughout history and for some reason it's come alive? Or is it something that has mutated into something that gave it recent, you know, incubation or birth or whatever? I mean, I, I'm that's trying a great to understand. Question. Well, I'm going to ask you, Steve. I mean, that's very insightful. Did, did somebody uh, send you in this question? <laughs> 
Oh, uh, because we, we no, I'm serious. We, we, Jake we really, would appreciate that comment because all I do is get crap from these two guys every no, time I no, try that's, to come up with a good question. Um, w the answer, the long and the short, is we don't really know. Huh. Um, the it appears that all three of the uh, COVID viruses that have caused infections, SARS, uh, MERS, or the three that we know about. And, and now COVID-19 originated in bats. Um, and there probably was an intermediate animal. Uh, it was the civet cat for SARS. It was the camel for MERS. Hmm. And we don't know for sure whether it's the pangolin, which is a odd looking animal that people like to eat, uh, China. Um, we, you know, we just don't know for sure. So that there are, are there we are sure it's not are we sure it's not Great Danes? <laughs> That's just flat out mean. Um, Steve owns two Great Danes. Oh, that that I didn't know. Have to get updated on that. Um, so there there are a lot of viruses that are similar to this, but they haven't infected humans, as far as we know. I actually read an article within the last day or two about someone who thinks, well, there's a possibility that um, people have been infected by this virus or a very, very similar virus, but that it just never, for various reasons, got to a much larger uh, number of people. Uh, the other thing just to, to realize is sometimes a little bit of something can change in terms of a mutation of a virus that either makes it more infectious, uh, makes it uh, exist on surfaces longer, or stays suspended in the air longer. And you say, well, what difference does that make? Well, that, that would determine how easily it's going to be for one person to infect another person. But mm -hmm. one other comment I would want to make, just so people are aware of it, that this is a virus that's trans... Uh, or, or infects other people from person to person or from person to surface to person. So there's no animal vector such as a mosquito or a tick or anything that's uh, carrying this disease between people. Uh, and when So it's okay if I pet my Great Danes and then my daughter pets them five I, minutes later? Well, most likely. Or is that considered a surface? Oh, it, well, it'd be a surface, but one of one of the two of you would have to be infected, and and that gets gotcha. me to one thing that uh, I tell people is that if your the inside of your house is your safe space, so that um, everyone who's in there is physically distancing. I don't like the term social distancing because we're really talking about a physical distance. Um, mm -hmm. And you can be within six feet of someone, but you may not be socially uh, close to the person. Um, but anyway, that was supposed to be a joke. Um, <laughs> that uh, you don't need to constantly wipe down the doorknobs within that safe space. What you need to do is make sure that you wipe down the doorknob that you handled to get into the house before you can effectively wash your hands. Um, and when we say that it goes from person to surface to person, we're really talking about getting that from someone's 
respiratory tract, either from coughing on the hand, touching the hand to the nose or mouth or eyes, uh, and then to a surface, and then the person who touches the surface touching somewhere on the face. And that's just a little bit of technical. The, the reason that makes a difference is this virus can only attach to receptors on certain cells. So, and they are in the respiratory tract, primarily in the lung. So you could rub this virus on your skin and, until you were bleeding, and you probably would never get infected even if the virus was on one of the hands or something. So, uh, you know, that much we do know about how it's transmitted. But when we went back, we were talking about, uh, before we got off a little bit, in terms of office or commercial spaces. And the main observation I've noticed is how poorly a lot of big box stores are set up and grocery stores in terms of now when they're trying to limit people coming in, do they have a separate entrance and exit? Some do and some don't. In some, you almost yeah. have to push through the people trying to get in in order to get out. Uh, the Ours do, Nathan. Our supermarket here actually has a designated entrance, exit, and it has a direction for each aisle. So you can only move through the supermarket in huh. one direction. You're, you're stealing my thunder, Steve, because that was what uh, uh, Walmart and some other companies, uh, stores started doing, was making the aisles one way. And I also hope they got stuff out of the aisles because a lot of stores, you can't get down an aisle with a grocery cart very easily because of displays that they have. And I really like when it's glass. You know, they'll have <laughs> 10 high of, of glass jars, and, and that's really dangerous. But anyway, that, that's an aside. So um, the other thing that um, they've started doing some places is putting up a sneeze guard of plastic in between the clerk at the register and the customers going down the, uh, the checkout line. So that, that's been a very simple way to, to get at least a droplet barrier between the customer and the, uh, the store clerk. Because I think that uh, people working in grocery stores are probably at risk only behind those in medical facilities that are dealing with people that are known to be uh, infected. So, Nathan, do you think um, in terms of the conditions that we might alter inside a building, should we be worried about temperature and relative humidity and trying to manage that in terms of a less favorable environment for this virus? From what I've read, there are theoretical reasons for trying to control the humidity and temperature. But from a practical point of view, I, I think the gain is so little that um, I don't think it's worth trying to, you know, to maintain a specific relative humidity or temperature. I, I think so. Not much. Not much bang for the buck, right? Uh, correct. And for you know, sort of the ideal point is not too dry, not too moist, uh, or not too humid, and and that's considering more than just the virus. Um, you know, there's some reason to think that the higher the relative humidity, um, the, you know, the faster the virus may get to the ground, but you're, you're probably talking the difference of several minutes uh, to an hour, not 
dramatic differences. Now, the other thing that I want to just interject here is very different for some other measles, uh, some other viruses and infections. Uh, the measles virus, for example, can stay suspended in air for hours. It's, it's mm. considered that it can be infectious as an aerosol rather than as a droplet. Um, mm. So you, you can't generalize about all viruses from what we know about uh, COVID-19. Hey, Nathan, you and I talked about this really briefly, but um, there was when we had the uh, Spanish flu in the 1917, 1918, 1919, there was one study I heard about that said that in addition to the loss of life, um, they calculated that there was a potential of 12 to 13 years reduction in sort of average people's lifetime because of the stress placed by, um, by, the, by that particular virus. Do you have a sense of whether this virus, in addition to making people sick and some people die, that it has an effect on lifespan? Um, way too soon to tell, as far as I know. I have actually not seen, although I, I might have missed it, um, very much in, uh, information in terms of among those who were severely ill, after they recover and presumably mm -hmm. no longer infectious and have some immunity, what their functional status is. In other words, how long is it taking them to recover and how completely do they recover? Um, just as an aside or what you said in terms of stress, it's very clear, though, that um, a lot of people are experiencing tremendous amount of stress, um, psychological in terms of being very fearful, not only for the mm. current situation, but um, for the, the economic consequences um, of what may happen. Um, so, Nathan, just turning to another aspect of um, buildings, can we filter our way out of this problem? Uh, the short and the long answer would be no. Um, I was afraid. You assuming you're that. talking about air filtration. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> because it doesn't stay suspended very long, it probably um, doesn't make any difference because the. By the, by the time the air would get to the filter, all of the uh, viral particles are going to have dropped out. The only place where this could potentially make a difference would be in a hospital, but what they're doing in hospitals of wh where they can, of patients who are on a ventilator, they have, uh, those are negative pressure rooms, meaning they exhaust the air out from that room so that none of the air from that room where there would have been a lot of virus in the air will leave that room and potentially uh, infect other people. But for a, a home or office building, uh, filtration would not be something that I would worry about. So Nathan, you mentioned, but I wanna come back to um, exactly what should people be focused on sort of what is the biggest bang for your buck in terms of protecting yourself um, hey, just before we get to that i i got my next layman question so cool. when when you talked about air infiltration and you said okay the virus will have dropped out what what does dropped out mean does this 
like virus vaporize? Does it fall to the floor? I mean, what 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 is dropped out? It, it will it will fall to the floor because the uh, the the droplets are heavier than air itself, so they don't stay suspended. An individual viral particle can, but the uh, as far as we know, this virus um, stays attached to that. Uh, water droplet uh or it, it at least you know when they're measuring the air um farther from someone who coughed or measure uh, the air a little while later right where that person had been there will not be detectable virus there so it's it's by gravity um it's making its way to the floor the, and the other thing, just in terms of that, well, does that mean we need to clean the floor or the street? I mean, I've just been kind of um, amused when I've seen pictures mostly from Asia where there will be teams of uh, workers spraying to disinfect the street. And uh, I, I said yeah. to my wife today, I said, it's not hoof and mouth disease where you can be carrying it on your shoe. Uh, so unless kids are crawling around on the ground outside um, or you happen to like to do, lick the bottom of your shoe, I wouldn't be particularly worried about the ground. So surfaces we are worried about, Nathan, you, you mentioned like doorknobs, handrails, things a lot of people use. What about different surfaces? You know, cloth compared to plastic, plastic compared to glass, glass compared to metal. Well, it depends what the metal is. I'm trying to, to look because I don't necessarily remember everything. Um, the, the fascinating thing, of the studies that have been done so far that I'm aware of, looking at how long the viral particles are still detectable on a surface, for plastic, glass, and stainless steel or typical metals, it's several days. Whether it's two or three days or a little bit longer, you know, is is debatable at this point. Uh, copper hmm. seems to be only about four hours. Hmm. Uh, so if you had copper doorknobs and nobody touched it for four hours, uh, there's probably no detectable virus left. Uh, and that may have to do with uh, ionic activity on the surface or free electrons. Who, who knows exactly? I don't. Um, and aluminum, hard aluminum surfaces, it's six to eight hours. Um, mm. Cardboard is fascinating in that for some reason, uh, cardboard, it's about 24 hours. And mm. they're not sure whether it's because the cardboard absorbs uh, the water that's with the, the aerosol droplet or it's something else. But then I also saw someone saying that with paper, it's variable from several hours to um, several days. So hmm. what I tell people... So, so there's a relationship to permeance. That's what you're saying, it, right? Well, it may it very well may be that the, if, it, if it's permeable and, and the water vapor goes, as, as, you know, goes through it, um, you have the isolated viral particles. The other thing, notice I said there's detectable virus. It doesn't automatically mean that it's a, a viral particle that's still going to be able to infect you. 
And uh-huh. the other thing I talked a little bit about, because I've, I've sent some emails out to family members and they've gotten distributed to friends with my thoughts on it. And I got asked, well, what's viral load? And because this comes up sometimes. And I said, well, the term was first used in terms of HIV infections, especially. What's the viral load in the blood? Um, so it's actually something that can be measured, the number of viral particles in a quantity of liquid. But what's also important in terms of infection is the viral load of how much viral, how many viral particles are you getting infected with at the time you get infected. And the reason that can make a difference is if you, say, inhaled millions of viral particles, well, that's a lot of viral particles that you're already starting out with. That's a lot of cells that are going to quickly be get uh, infected by that virus, and a lot more viral particles are going to be released uh, from the new viral particles that are manufactured. Whereas if you get infected with a very small number of viral particles, your body's going to have time to start reacting to some of those Mm -hmm. particles before you suddenly are exposed to millions and billions of viral particles. So who does it mean? It means healthcare workers can get exposed to massive amounts of virus depending upon the quality of their protective equipment. The, The question that comes to mind when you talk about that, Nathan, is does that mean that I can partially get COVID-19 or is it an all or nothing proposition? Like I'm, there's even, a, there's a certain enough particles that I get it, or there's certain enough amount of particles that I don't get it, or is there the, I got it halfway? Um, in- interesting question. You probably either actually get infected or, or you don't. Um, but, but I, you know, I don't think we know we really for almost all organisms or or, uh, viruses, how many particles it takes. I mean, that's research that's hard to do. Um, Mm. But... uh, Well, there's probably parameters that set that up, right? Right. I mean, me being a svelte guy at 175, that would be a lot (laughs) different than maybe if I was 340 pounds or something, Um, right? That there there might be different parameters. Probably less to do with body size, but uh, because what's fascinating, as I said earlier, this virus only can attach to certain numbers of cells, certain types of cells. And I'm not going to get technical with it, but... um, one thing that is clear is that smokers have more of these uh, cells than non-smokers. And mm-hmm. the, the viral particle has to attach to those specific cells. And um, I'm pretty sure I read this, that the SARS virus uh, was a little bit different in terms of the cells to which it attached. Um, you know, viruses are weird things. Hey, Nathan, to wrap up on this, um, what about uh, uh, sort of potent versus not so potent disinfectants? What should, you know, I've heard that, hey, if you use an alcohol, it's got to be 70 percent. What, what what do we do to make sure we're using materials that actually uh, deal with the virus? Um, there's a very good list on the CDC website. Um, Oh, actually, I'm sorry, it's the epa.gov website. But what's ironic, because I keep having trouble going back to this, I should have bookmarked it, but it's under pesticide registration. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, 
they, wow. Yeah, that's, so it's that, that's why I, can, I couldn't find it easily under COVID or viral infections. It's under pesticides. Um, dilute bleach is very effective. 70% alcohol, either isopropyl, or if you really want to waste your good ethanol, you can use ethanol. Except not, you, not, not wasting any ethanol. Well, no way. <laughs> depends, but you know it's also more likely to get sticky uh, from the sugar that's in it. Uh, mm. And then hydrogen peroxide, um, sodium huh. hypochlorite. But some of these you got to remember can be irritating to skin. So that mm -hmm. if you're going to use hypochlorite, you'd or hypochlorous chlorous acid, you would want to use gloves. Um, I'll just use those on the kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, fortunately, almost all of those are very inexpensive and up until very recently were readily available. But, yeah. you know, right now trying to find uh, uh, wipes that, you know, are bleach or one of these are, are few and far between and, and uh, more expensive. But um, good old soap detergent also works um so you know not only for hands but for you you, you could use it you know, on counter spaces um but i was thinking about that getting back to uh houses when we were talking about well you know what do you want to think about in terms of your house and one of the things i was thinking about is that's handy is when the sink is very close to your entrance because if, if you can wash your hands as soon as you get in the house and then wipe down the doorknob inside and out that you've touched, you've, you've kept your safe space safe. And when so you're inside that safe space, then unless someone comes in that violates the terms of that safe space, it's a safe space. Yeah, that, that's a great way to look at it. You know, you know what I find interesting, Nathan, when you talk about it being the safe space? You know, we, we relating it to the building industry, I, I have some builders here that basically the building inspectors won't come out to job sites, mm. especially remodeling ones, because they say, well, we can't come into that house that's being inhabited by people, blah, blah, blah. And, and I and I get it. I'm not saying that they do. But but the reality is, is the building inspector is a threat to the house, not the <laughs> house to the building inspector. <laughs> Right. So they're, they're saying, hey, we don't want to come out and get sick. But the, the, the traveler is the building inspector, is the, the host. And the homeowner should be afraid of him, not him afraid of going to the job site. Well, right. I'd say and and, and again, um, again, it's it's either being close to that person or that person touching things that then you touch. So if the building inspector can get in the house without touching the doorknobs. And uh, unless that building inspector needs to open a panel or something, but that that's where the homeowner can do that for him. Uh, just give you an example. We're, we'll have our sprinkler system, irrigation system turned on in another couple of weeks. Normally that uh, worker would come down to our basement and turn the valve on, but it's a valve that we can turn on. So that person's not gonna need to come in the house, but if they did, if we open all the doors, the only thing they would need to touch potentially is a handrail on the stairs. Uh, and I, I was joking with my family members uh, in an email about what we need to do to say, stay safe over the next couple of weeks. And one of the big things is 
don't get injured or need to go to the hospital for something other than uh, COVID-19 because you may not get taken care of. So I told several brothers to stay off ladders. And I said I needed to make sure that I hold on to a stair rail as I'm going up and down stairs, but I'd have to, if someone else came in and hadn't washed their hands, then I'd need to wipe down that stair rail. I thought you were going to recommend that people slide on their butt down the, the rail as opposed to touching it with their hands. Isn't that, isn't that a good medical advice? Uh, that actually... Well, if you spray it first, you get it clean, too, <laughs> on your way down, right? No, it, it is funny. When I had my hip replaced, I wasn't supposed to go up and down stairs for a while. And uh, you know how doctors are. They don't like to listen to other doctors' advice. Um, so I, very, I said, no, I want to sleep in my bed. And I want to go downstairs to eat. So I, uh, I went up and down on my butt. And uh, very quickly, because it was my left leg and not my right leg, so I could drive quickly. Um, yeah, that, uh, that's a way to avoid the handrail. And also, if you, it's kind of hard to fall very far if you're on your, already on your butt. Already on your butt. <laughs> which, which, which is why I never worry about holding onto a stair rail going upstairs. Because I'm leaning forward, and my head's not very far from the surface it's going to hit. <laughs> if you fall going down the stairs, you're much more likely to go head over heels uh, and get and, hurt. And now because it's family like and my, friends, we have gone that, into too much information big time. Th that's my, my snowboarding teacher said. He goes, if you fall, always fall uphill. Don't fall downhill. It's a hell of a lot longer, and gravity isn't in your favor. Well, as I uh, and very amusing to me aside is when I took a course many years ago on animal diversity, one of the things they talked about is one of the problems of going from walking on all fours to being upright is that the computer center, i.e. the brain, is now far enough off the ground that if you fall six feet and hit a hard surface, you've got a good chance of being dead. It's very hard if you're walking on all fours to fall down and hit your head uh, and kill yourself. So that's why when you've had too much to drink, Steve, it's always better to be on all fours. Crawling around. <laughs> Go back to our, our quadruped, right, when we do that. Hey, so folks, uh, Steve, you have anything you want to wrap up with, Nathan? I know we're going to ha be having him back because he's the man when it comes to human health and buildings. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to to make note to our listeners to, hey, you know, check back here in the very near future because we're going to have Nathan back because there's there's a whole lot of information that Nathan brings to the table about things that should scare you in a house, things that probably shouldn't scare you in a house, and uh, things not to worry about and, uh, and how that relates directly to your health. So, Nathan, personally, a huge thank you. It's always a treat. I always learn something when we get together and have a discussion. Greatly appreciate you joining us here today. Peter, I'll let you wrap it up. Yeah, thanks, brother. I really appreciate it. Checks in the mail, you know. Uh, always. <laughs> it's been great, both to you and Steve. We should do it again. Okay, so that's a big wrap-up for the Unbuild It podcast. Tune in to catch more of our episodes. And uh, take care of yourself. Stay, stay safe.